Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, brother and sister and friends of Harvest Bible Chapel. Greetings to you in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for inviting me to share God's word with you. Before I begin my message, let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you this morning. We can gather uh, to, at different places to worship you. We are thankful for your words, Lord. We are grateful to continue to worship you by listening to your words. And we pray that, Lord, you will speak to us, Lord. And I pray that, Lord, you will help me to preach your words and help me to articulate well so that all of us who are listening to it able to understand and able to hide your words into our heart and apply into our life, Lord. May you lead and guide us, Lord. Help us to focus on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes things didn't work out the way we hoped. In fact, sometimes we do what we believe what God wants us to do and it turns out to be a complete disaster. For example, a church youth fellowship organized a mission trip to attend a mission conference and followed by mission works after the conference. On the departure day, 12 youth and 5 adult chaperones hopped into the church bus. On the way there, their bus flipped several times because of a punctured tire. Two young teenagers died as a result of this bus accident. Many of the survivors and their families wonder why God allows or didn't stop this accident from happening, especially they were obedient to do His work. Or consider a worker who discovered corruption in his company. After agonizing over what to do, he decided as a Christian that it was his moral obligation to report the co-worker for cheating their customer. However, management would not listen. Not only did the corruption continue, but he was labeled a troublemaker and denied a promotion. This kind of things happen all the time. A woman refused to marry or even date a man who is not a Christian and now she's still waiting for the right man. Parents do everything they can to raise their children right and then watch as they run away from God. A pastor teaches a gospel from the Bible and works hard on growth and discipleship in church, but instead of growing, the congregations start to shrink. It happens often. A Christian does what God calls him or her to do and things get worse. Situations like this make us begin to wonder if we did the right thing. And maybe we even wonder if God cares what happens to us. This is exactly what happened to Moses. Moses had done everything God asked him to do. And of course, we all know that it took him a while to accept God's call. When he was first called, he gave all kinds of excuses not to obey God. But after a series of arguments back and forth with God, he finally agreed to obey God's 
call for him to lead God's people out of Egypt. From that point, he had been careful to do whatever God wanted him to do. And one would think that once Moses was at the center of God's will, he would be living a victorious life, right? Wrong. Things could hardly have gone worse than they did. Following God's instructions, Moses went to see Pharaoh and told him to let God's people go. And that turned out to be a complete disaster. Instead of letting the Israelites go, Moses made their life more miserable. He, doubted, he doubled their workload and told them to make bricks without providing them straws. Things progressed from bad to worse. This setback caused the Israelites to turn against Moses and Aaron. And by the end of chapter 5, both Pharaoh and the Israelites have rejected both the message and the messenger, Moses and Aaron. The more Moses obeyed, the worse things got. What should we do when we are in Moses' situations? How should we respond when trouble comes for doing what's right? The passage we are going to look at this morning, Exodus chapter 5, verse 22 to Exodus 6, verse 12, shows us that whenever we are in Moses' situation, whatever problems we have, whatever difficulties we face, the most important thing is to know and remember who God is. We are called to remember and place our trust in the one who says, I am the Lord, I am the great I am. The great I am is sovereign, faithful God of all salvation and grace. If you have the Bible with you, please turn to Exodus chapter 5, toward the end of chapter 5. As mentioned before, by this time, Moses was deeply discouraged. He had done everything God told him to do, yet the situation didn't improve, but got worse. So Exodus chapter 5, verse 22 to 23, tell us Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble to these people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on these people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Moses was complaining and even blaming God. Here in Exodus chapter 6, we see God's response to Moses' complaint and cry for help. And first, God reminded Moses that he was sovereign and remained in control. Moses' complaint was that God wasn't doing what he had promised. You have not delivered your people at all. That's what he said in verse 23 of chapter 5. But the truth was that God had everything under his control, as he always did. Listen to what God said in, to Moses in chapter 6, verse 1. Now you will see, see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hands. He will let them go because of my mighty hand. He will drive them out his country. God was telling Moses nothing could hinder his plan. This may not have been the answer Moses was hoping for. God never explained exactly why he allowed his people to go through so much hardship. God didn't try to justify himself to Moses at all. He simply repeated his promise to glorify himself by defeating Pharaoh. 
Moses had thought that things had gone from bad to worse, but as far as God was concerned, everything was going perfectly according to his plan. Even Pharaoh's refusal and retribution was part of his salvation plan. God was setting up, setting things up so that Pharaoh would not only let God's people go, but would help drive them out himself. The all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God had everything under control. God was and is sovereign over all things, over the, all the affairs of man in the working of his plan. Because God is sovereign, we may be sure that when trouble comes, he's still in control. Whether we understand it or not, he is working to accomplish his glorious purpose. Sometimes God allowed our trouble to continue in order to prove that only he can save only he can save us. And the story of the Exodus is the perfect example. When Moses failed to change Pharaoh's mind, it became more than obvious that only God could set his people free. It was precisely when Moses despaired of providing deliverance himself that God said, now you will see what I will do. The lesson to learn is that when trouble comes, we are to trust in God alone for our salvation. Sometimes God allowed trouble to continue in order to teach us patience. Moses seemed to think that Exodus would begin the moment he started obeying God, but godliness doesn't guarantee immediate result. And God's plans often takes time to develop. Well, he revealed his glory through the gradual unfolding of his purpose. And in this case, the Israelites have been waiting 400 years for their salvation. God could, save, could have saved them any time, but that was not his plan. Like Moses, we need to show a little patience by taking a long view and resisting a quick fix, taking the matter into our own hands or rushing God's timetable. We also need to be cautious about deciding whether something is of God's will by looking at how it is turning out, especially if it's not according to our expectation. At the first sign of trouble, Moses was ready to give up, but he needed to keep doing what he was called to do because God was still at work. Philip Riken said, things almost never turn out the way we expect, especially at first. And God loves to glorify himself in ways that go far beyond anything we anticipate. No successful ministry ever proceed without difficulty. If Christians were to give up every time they ran into hardship, God's work would never get to at once. So when trouble comes, remember that God is sovereign. God still in control. Trust his sovereignty. Not only we must remember God is sovereign, we must also remember His faithfulness. God tells Moses that He is faithful to keep His covenant in verses 2 to 5. Verses 2, verse 2, I am the Lord, God said, I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have 
remember my covenant. Here we see that God repeats almost all the things he said to Moses back in chapter 3. My name is Yahweh, I'm the God of your father. I will keep my covenant. I will bring you into the promised land. I know all your pain and suffering. When God repeating things like this, it is because we need to hear them more than once. You see, we are forgetful people. And this is why so much of the Christian life consists of being reminded of what we already know so that we can apply it to each new situation in life. When troubles come, we need to be reminded that God is still God. He is the God of history, the very same God who promised salvation to Abraham and brought Moses out of Egypt. And like Moses, we need to remember that God knows what we are going through and that He is faithful to keep every promise that He has ever made so that we don't lose hope. Here was three raise and interesting question or obvious question. It seems to suggest that God never revealed his special divine name, the Lord, L-O-R-D, or in capital, or Yahweh, to the patriarchs. However, that special divine name which expressed the active existence of who God is occurs more than 100 times in the book of Genesis. For example, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, point out that at the time Enosh was born, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital. Another example is Genesis chapter 15, verse 2, where Abraham himself prayed to Yahweh the Lord. And this showed that although the patriarchs normally use God's other name, like El Shaddai, which meant God Almighty, they were not unfamiliar with the special divine name Yahweh or the Lord. So probably the best explanation, according to the scholar, was that the patriarchs didn't fully understand the meaning of God's proper name. There is a huge difference between simply knowing someone's name and actually knowing that person. So when God said to Moses, by my name the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them, this doesn't mean that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had never heard of God's name before. It meant that they didn't fully understand it because they didn't know God in all his fullness. Remember that although Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew the living God, they never witnessed his mighty work of salvation. They only received it by promise. And this is the difference between Genesis and Exodus. Abraham came to know God as promise maker. Moses came to know him as promise keeper. In the Exodus, God was not simply making promises to them, but was actually starting to keep them. God was demonstrating the saving power behind his passion in revealing himself as the Lord of their salvation. The reason the Exodus generation got to see this mighty saving power was because God remembered his covenant, his unbreakable promise of salvation. God never forgot that he had promised to make Abraham into a mighty nation and to give him a land to call his own. And therefore, when Abraham's descendants were slaves in Egypt, God remembered that he had promised to bring them into Canaan. And he did it all for love. And God saw the suffering of his people and he was moved with compassion to rescue them, the compassion of his eternal covenant. 
The psalmist said that in Psalm 105, verse 8, God remembered his covenant forever. One, in fact, can trade this glorious theme throughout the whole Bible. Ultimately, God kept his covenant in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we are part of an eternal covenant established by Christ's own blood. You see, when we believe what Christ, trust Christ, what Christ has done for us on the cross, we enter into an eternal covenant relationship with God. And because of this, we can find peaceful rest during life's discouraging time because we have a Savior who died, rose, ascended to the Father and now interceding for us, sustaining us. And He is forever faithful to His people. Remember His faithfulness and covenant. And this leads us to the next point. Remember God's promises. Because of His covenant with His people, God reminded Moses of His promises to save. In verses 6 to 8, God announced the seven I will statements. Verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I'll bring you to the land I swore with uplift hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Although there were seven I view statements in these verses, there were really only four basic promises, which are also four gospel promises. The first two I will statements speak of liberation. Verse 6 said, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. This is a picture of salvation. God is going to bring his people out of slavery. He is going to deliver them. God will liberate the people from bondage to the mediator Moses. And this will be accomplished by grace to faith. For it is not something they have earned. It is not something they perform. It's not based on their good work, based on how wonderful they are. And the purpose of this liberation is that they might worship the Almighty God. Remember, this is what Moses told Pharaoh. Moses told, God told Moses to tell Pharaoh that to let his people go so that they may worship him. Of course, this liberation truth is taught in the New Testament as well. In Exodus, we see a picture of what is to come. For example, for Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus gave himself for our sin to rescue us from this present evil age. Likewise, God set us free from spiritual slavery to sin and our inability to keep the law through the mediator Jesus Christ. And this occurs only by grace to faith, for we have not earned this to our own good work, to our own effort. And the purpose of our liberation of our release is worship as well. We are made to worship, and only through this liberation can we truly worship God. There is an already and not yet dimension to our salvation as well. Israel was looking forward to these promises. For us, in one sense, they have already happened to us. 
But we also look forward to the not yet when Jesus will set us free, rescue us from this present age. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the suffering of this present time or this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. God says that we will suffer in this life because we are still living in this fallen world. This fallen has been corrupted, affected by sin. So don't be surprised if you have relationship problem, get COVID or lose your job. What God has promised us is resurrection from the dead and freedom from the bondage of sin. We are set free, but we still dwell in this fallen world, the Egypt. Therefore, we are still affected by it. And we are awaiting ultimate, final liberty when Jesus comes again. And while awaiting, God's Spirit is renewing us, preparing us for the final, ultimate liberation when Jesus comes again. Next, the second promise, which is redemption. Second half of verse 6 said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Redemption was a financial term. In the ancient marketplace, it was used to describe the release of a slave by the payment of a ransom. Later, this became part of the biblical law. If an Israelite had to sell himself into slavery in order to pay a debt, his own family member would redeem him by paying the price for his freedom. And this is recorded in Leviticus chapter 25. In biblical times, redemption was always the right of a near kinsman. And that was to say a family member or close relative who acted to protect the family when they were in some particular types of situation or some difficulties. For example, if a family member was murdered, the kinsman redeemer would see to it that guilty person was brought to justice. If a kinsman fell into a debt and was forced to sell his land, a kinsman redeemer would take the responsibility to purchase the land in order to keep it in his family. If a man died without a son to inherit his name and property, the kinsman redeemer's job was to take the deceased man's widow and seek to raise an heir. And one good example of this is Ruth and Boaz. If you're not familiar with this story, let me encourage you to go back and read the book of Ruth. And here we see that God is the ultimate kinsman redeemer for he will redeem his people. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 2, God, has, God described himself as Israel's father, their kinsman. His relatives were in bonded labor, spiritual slavery, and he was coming to defend, intervene, avenge, and rescue them. And he was coming to redeem, redeeming them with justice, as the text in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 says, God will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of justice. God will redeem them by punishing the Israelites, punishing the Pharaoh. And this is how God will redeem them. And in your discouragement, remember that you have a great redeemer. Jesus, your kinsman, redeemer, protector, has intervened in your misery. He has paid the price to relieve you from your great, greatest death, from your most desperate situation. He has paid it with his own blood, with his own life. And now we are free from our slavery to sin. 
and the power of sin has lost its grip on us, we'll be changed. And soon, we'll know the riches of our redemption. When Jesus comes again in his majesty to complete the final act of redemption, all our problems that we have encountered here will seem as nothing. The third promise is adoptions, which is found in the fourth and fifth I will statements. Verse 7 said, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And this verse shows the family nature of salvation. It reminds us of the doctrine of adoptions. God was going to take Israel as his people. As mentioned before, he had already called them his son. Though he did, they didn't deserve it, this was a display of God's incomparable love. And, that's, and likewise in redemption, God has rescued us from a dreadful situation and through adoption, God brings us into his family. And that's why in Galatians, Paul put redemption and the family dimension of adoption together. And he said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his son, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Isn't that amazing? What a privilege. And that's why John say in John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on earth that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Since the fall of our four parents, humanity has been sinning against God like an orphan living at the bottom of a pit. And yet God in His great love, in His great mercy, didn't give up on us, willing to redeem us and adopt us through His Son Jesus Christ and give us the right to be His children. And the psalmist says in Psalm 40, verse 2 to 3, said, He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song into my mouth, a hymn of praise to a God. And many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. Isn't that amazing? God has brought you out of a pit and place you in his eternal family. If we really pause and think, God's love for us is really beyond our comprehension. How could he love someone like me? How could he redeem a servant like me? How could he adopt me into his family and invite me to serve with him in his kingdom? Well, he did because of his great love, his great mercy. The last two I will statements concern what might be called the promise of inheritance or possessions. Verse 8 says, I will bring you to the land I saw with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. God was promising his people that they may, would possess a land. And this promise was first mentioned to Abraham in chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. And later in the book of Joshua, we'll see the people entering, con conquering, and inhabiting the land. These people had nothing. They were slaves in Egypt, but God was providing them an inheritance. He was giving them the promised land, all by His grace. 
they didn't earn it. The New Testament applied this idea of inheriting the promised land to the believer's hope in the new heaven and new earth. By Jesus' resurrection, Peter said that we have the inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Peter said that this inheritance is awesome, it's amazing because it's imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading. And assured, have kept in heaven for you. He's been assured for us. We have a better home, better home, better place awaiting us. So, my dear brother and sister, do lose focus and spend energy pursuing things in this fallen world. And also, don't lose hope when things are not going well for you. This fallen world shall pass. We need to be more heavenly minded, set our minds on things above. John Newton said that the way Christian might endure trial is by considering the doctrine of glorification, which includes inheritance. You see, we begin our Christian life with doctrine of justification. When we believe Christ, accept uh, Him, accept Jesus for what He has done for Him, accept Him as our Lord and Savior, we are justified by faith. And, uh, we begin our Christian journey with justification. And then we continue with sanctification. Uh, that means while we are here, God continues his work in us, renewing us, sanctify us, yeah. until we see him face to face. That's the glorification. So Newton said that Christian should not complain, murmur or despair in light of all that is coming. He said we should imagine a young man who inherited a really large estate worth millions of dollars and he had to go to New York City to get it. As he traveled there, his carriage broke down, leaving him to walk the, walk the last mile. And can you imagine, can you imagine this man cursing and screaming, saying, my carriage broken, my carriage is broken, when he has only one mile to go to receive the million dollars. My dear brothers and sisters, we are only have a few more miles to go. So let's learn to rest in God's promises. Learn to rest in God's faithfulness. We know His promises will come true because of the cross. We have just looked at the four wonderful aspects of salvation, liberation, redemption, adoptions, and possessions or inheritance. God made all these promises saying, I will save you. And all these promises are accomplished in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for every one of God's promise is yes in Him, is yes in Christ. When you're wondering what God is doing, when you question His kindness, when you are struggling to trust Him, when lives get harder rather than easier rather than better looks to the wooden cross and the empty tomb see how God keep his promises despite the amazing promise Moses and Israel struggle to believe the people of Israel were unmoved the text said that it was because of their broken spirit and hard labor 
They were so broken, they would not listen or believe to the promise of freedom. Sometimes people are so wounded, are so hurt, it is hard for them to put everything together. It is hard for them to hear. Sometimes people are so mentally and emotionally crushed, they cannot understand. So what can we do? We have to be patient. We have to be patient with them and continue to minister to them, continue to encourage them, minister to them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And keep holding them in our prayers and asking God to continue to work in their lives. It took some time for Israel to hear what God had, was saying to them. But in the meantime, there was work to be done. So in verse 10 to 12, God told Moses to go back to Pharaoh. God told Moses, you must go to Pharaoh and, and do what I tell you to tell Pharaoh. And Moses' response was, was one of unbelief and confusion. You know? and, and Moses' response to God is like, you know, the Israel wouldn't listen to me. You know? How could Pharaoh listen to me? You know? And then he stressed, giving an excuse that he was a poor speaker. And Moses was like many of us who are tempted to give up, especially when things didn't go our way. But once again, God persisted, and God commanded him to listen and to obey. God told me, you must go. My dear brothers and sisters, things will not be easy while we are following him, serving him, and awaiting our ultimate salvation from in this fallen world. The question is, are you tempted to give up? Are you tempted to stop trusting Him? Sometimes following and serving God is so discouraging that it is tempting to stop following and doing something we know God has called us to do. A few problems occurs and then all of the old fears and doubts return. And we start to come up with the same old excuses. I can't go on anymore. God, I can't do it. I'm not good at this. Please find someone else. You know, Lord, I don't have time anymore. But remember who the Lord is. He is the great I am. He is always the answer. He was the answer when the Israelites were in slavery and have to make bricks without straw. He was the answer when Moses seemed to be failing and wasn't sure he could keep on serving God. And he is the answer for us whenever we face problems and are tempted to stop doing what God has called us to do. God says to us, I am the Lord. I am the great I am. If He is our Lord, then we must know Him, trust Him, obey Him, and serve Him. What is God calling you to do or keep on doing? You may be having some problems. You may be discouraged. You may have doubts about whether you can do it, especially this pandemic. Many of us are affected one way or another. So many churches are affected by it. Every church has their own struggle. And sometimes when we are in struggle, we have doubt, we have question. Question is, are you tempted to give up? Are you tempted to stop doing what, called, what God has called you to do? If you are in these situations, remember who is with you? Remember who is with you. The great I am. 
Remember His sovereignty. Remember His covenant. Remember His promises. And remember His grace. Remember that you serve the Lord who has promised to do everything to save you from beginning to end. Remember you have few more miles to go. So remember today, no matter how hard your story is right here, since you are God's child, it will end better than anything you can now imagine, and the glory will never end. Remember the great I am. Let's pray. God, we come before you. We want to praise you, honor you, and exalt you. And we ask that in the weakness of our faith, by your grace, you will pick us up and you will give us our breath back. And you will enable us to see you for who you are and to trust you and to, to, to obey you and to hope in you and to continue to do what you have called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.